lifestyle choices, and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. We've got a really interesting show. I've got Rebecca Rowland. She's a Harvard speech language pathologist, and she's talented. She's an oral and written language specialist in the neurology department of Children's Hospital in Boston and a lecturer at Harvard University. As a nationally certified speech language pathologist, she has worked clinically with populations ranging from early childhood through high school and provided teacher professional development. As faculty and module director at Harvard Medical School, she lectures on topics of communication, mental focus, and creativity. She frequently consults with organizations working to design powerful learning experiences for kids and adults, including the World Bank. She has an doctorate in education from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, an MS in speech language pathology from the MGH Institute of Health Professionals, and MA in English from Boston University and a BA in English from Yale. She lives in Boston, Massachusetts with her husband and her two children. And it's interesting because I learned a little bit earlier, she's a Georgia girl, so she's got some (laughs) Southern roots in her too. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to give credit to those Southern roots. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, yes. Thanks for having me. Well, and what we want to talk about, she's also an author. She wrote in a book, The Art of Talking with Children. And it's a book that's really designed to enhance how your your relationship with kids. And we all know relationships is the it's the basis for everything we do in life. And communicate being able to communicate both oral and written is so important for that. I mean, her book is being translated into eight languages. So I think that shows us how appropriate it is. So tell me, what prompted you to write the book? Yes, well, actually, uh, my book is a combination memoir and guidebook. So it is a book for parents, for educators, or anybody who works with kids. But it's also really was prompted by my own experience as a mother. Uh, I started having some really interesting conversations with my children, my youngest daughter, uh, or my daughter, um, and I realized that we didn't actually have a lot of interesting conversations all of the time, even though my focus was on speech and language. So we were often having kind of logistical conversations about how to get to different places or you know, where she needed to be or what we were going to do tomorrow, but we weren't actually taking the time for a lot of deeper conversations. So my book was really an investigation of how could we build our relationships and have more of those deeper conversations. That's, you know, there's always a good story behind everything we do. Not always, but most of the time. And that's, you know, when it comes from the heart, and it sounds like that's where it started, was in your heart, then it it just reaches everybody. I really do. So what was the first step? I mean, did you just decide, well, while I learn, I'm going to write a book? Or did you learn it all and then think, wow, I should write a book about this? Yes, actually, it was a gradual process. So I've been writing a lot of personal essays just about motherhood and about kind of learning to understand my children um, as they grew up, starting with my daughter um, since she was the first. And 
then I started to realize I was taking some writing workshops and a lot of people said, well, it's interesting that you write about, you know, the development of language and relationships with your daughter, but you also know so much about it from the research. This is your professional field. Um, so what about if you brought those two things together and really think about sort of toggling back and forth between your own child and your own experience and kind of looking outward and saying, well, what does this mean in terms of the research or what could we do based on what we know? Um, and that was just a really powerful idea to me because I realized that there's not actually a lot out there talking about how we can proactively kind of inspire our children and have these positive relationships through conversation. And I realized it could be much more than just a personal journey and it could maybe reach um, a broader audience talking about these issues. So that was for me um, kind of a light bulb moment and something I really want to focus on going forward. Well, I think that, you know, there's communication while we think it's so simple. It's not always so simple. And it sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's developmental issues that come into play. And being able to really successfully communicate and teaching your kids how to communicate. That's one of the most important things that, that we can do as parents that we can do, because that's what will take them further in life. Without those skills, it gets a little difficult. Um, but I understand that you also are a poet and you write fiction. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, what kind of poetry do you write? Um, so I really write mostly lyric poetry, so not poetry with any stories, but really poetry about emotional experiences, about relationships, um, and about sort of our interactions with the world around us, the natural world, and even things like marriage, uh, you know, getting along with people, not getting along with people. And so I do think these themes all translate throughout my work. And sometimes people ask, you know, how are all of these things related? And I do think it is all about kind of authentic relationships with other people and using language to communicate those. Um, and I think about it from all of these different perspectives, so which has been really fun. Well, it sounds like you really, really enjoy what you do. I, and at the, you know, when someone really loves what they do, it just, it shines through and it really makes, it makes me enjoy working with them. And I know you also, you, on your website, I noticed that you do some blog posts. So there's some good information out there on the website for people to check out. And the the website is Rebecca with two C's, Roland with two L's dot com. So I encourage you listeners to, to look at it because now, there was one article I read that was actually in Psychology Today, and it was signs that you and your kids are in sync. And I think that that's a that's great knowledge. I can look back. My boys are grown now, but I can look back and certainly I can see times where we weren't in sync. And sometimes I think that I just wanted to stick my head in the sand <laughs> and play like we were. But there were other times I know that I would have if I would have picked up on it, I would have loved to have reached out and done something. So, you know, I guess thinking back when I read that article, you one point that you made is that is when you when you can tell your kid, your child isn't up for conversation, then don't force it. Is that correct? Definitely. Yes. And I think um, and one thing I want to emphasize definitely with that kind of article is just 
how much we have to give ourselves or we should give ourselves self-compassion um, because I think it is so hard when you notice, you know, you're not in sync or your child doesn't want to talk to you right at that moment. And I know I have, and I've seen a lot of other parents where they feel like, oh, my child doesn't want to talk, but we really should be talking or I should be communicating with them. And so with the best of intentions, we might force the conversation or we might, you know, keep asking those questions. Um, and in my work, I've really found that that can be counterproductive. It's kind of a misunderstanding that, you know, we always need to be talking or we need to kind of push our children to get information out of them. And I actually find that having silence and downtime together can be equally powerful in building the relationship and then even having children be more open over time. So I do think that um, noticing if you're not in sync is a really great start and then thinking about, well, what are some of these key ways of becoming more in sync? Well, and you also made the point on responding differently to each child. And I think I mentioned before to you that I, I had twins and I made that was a big deal to me to not treat them this, this exactly the same way. I never dressed them alike um, because they were so they were two such different people mm -hmm. that I just never did. Uh, and, and a lot of people are like, wow, why don't you dress them alike? And I'm like, well, they're really even at even at one month out, they're very different little little beings. Mm -hmm. And I've learned the hard way that communicating with them differently was the way to do it. I couldn't lump them together. Okay, you know, boys, get in here. No, <laughs> sit down. I want to talk to you. And yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I wish I would have learned that a little quicker than I did, but I did learn it. And I guess, you know, that's that's what counts. Um, and I think that as long as you can laugh with your kids and have a good time with your kids and because we all come home from work, I certainly have many a days and I'm stressed out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah, How do you lay that yeah. aside. Yes, and I, I've seen that as well. So I think um, writing this book also is a very humbling experience because as I was writing about kind of things that we could try as parents or educators, I also tried it on my own home and my own myself. And I realized, yes, definitely there's all of these factors that come into play. So we might be stressed, or we might be you know, just tired or exhausted or feeling burnt out and all of those play, you know, they have an impact in how well we're able to connect and how much we could be in sync. So I think just being self-aware and saying, okay, well, maybe I am a bit more tired today. Maybe I don't have as much bandwidth for conversation, um, I think is a really great starting point. And I lay out a lot of that in my book because I, I have each seven areas where we can focus our conversations. And I think that it all does start with just checking in with ourselves. That's well, I know in, in your book, you talk about something called rich talk. What is that? Yeah, so it's really just a framework of how we can have these more meaningful conversations. And they don't have to be long, so it can just be even five or ten minute check-ins with our kids. Um, but there's three core principles that I lay out, um, and they're called the ABCs of rich talk. Um, so the first is to be adaptive, meaning to kind of go with the flow of your child, whether it's their mood or their temperament. And the second is back and forth. So B stands for back and forth, meaning creating a balance between the talk that the child has and then the talk that we have. So really talking with them rather than talking at them. And then the third is C is for child driven. 
So that just means really starting with what's on a child's mind, whether it's something that's exciting to them or worrying them or motivating them. And we know that when you put those three together, that really does create such a more powerful conversation than you might have otherwise. So do you need a certain amount of time to be able to do that? I mean, can you can you cover ABC in a 10 minute conversation? Well, yes. I mean, I definitely think about it rather than, you know, covering it in some ways, but really it's overall framework. So kind of an approach to conversations. So, you know, you really can, if you think about, you know, being adaptive might just mean choosing a time when your child feels more open, you know, so maybe you go out and play basketball first because you know that your child likes to talk when they're, you know, feeling a little worn out and relaxed. So that's even adaptive in itself. And the B part might just mean that maybe you listen more than you're used to um, because you know that you tend to talk a lot at your child and you just sit back a little bit more. Uh, so that might be the B. And child driven might just be, you know, asking your child a follow up question about what they're talking about. You know, tell me more or what does that mean to you? Or, you know, what exactly, you know, are you upset about when they start talking? So really, it doesn't have to be long and drawn out conversations, but just starting with some key principles. Well, you know, and I work with a lot of, of families and one of the uh, points of contention over the last few years has been video games. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they think their kids play too much, too many video games. And I don't disagree with that. Um, but I'm like, do you know what they play? Do you know what games they're playing? Well, no. Well, have you thought about playing the game with your kid? Mm -hmm. Because there's an awful lot of learning that can be done through a video game. So I think that, you know, when you think about just being together, doing things together and talking about it, that how does that, I mean, what a great way to get closer to your to your child in on their terms, not necessarily just on your terms. Definitely. Yes, I see that as well. And I think so often we hear the words video games and we just think, oh, that's bad or oh, we need to stop that. Um, you know, and some of the obviously very violent term video games, things we don't want children watching, but um, or playing. But I do have definitely seen even with my own kids that, you know, there's so many interactive games that especially if we play together, you know, they say, oh, I want to show you this thing or this is so cool. Let me, you know, let me show you how this works. And it's a chance even to learn from our children as well, which I think they often love when we don't know something and we can learn something from them. That really opens up such a great conversation as well. Oh, and kids love to be the teacher. Mm -hmm. They love to have their, their mom and their dad say, guess what, you know, Joe taught me today or guess what Jane taught me today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about re talking with your kids, but you also have a husband. <laughs> Do you use part of this in your communication with him? Yes, it's funny because um, so often when I talk about the principles of this book, you know, people have said to me, oh, well, this could work equally well with adults, you know, and I say, oh, yes, of course. And I, I have thought about that and I have actually um, been thinking about this in my relationship with him and also just with adults in general. I mean, I've noticed so often especially this back and forth is something we often forget to do. Um, and one thing I've noticed in my own life and with lots of parents I work with is that we often have competing agendas that we're never actually having a real back and forth conversation. So, you know, just a very simple example is, you know, a child might say, 
oh, my robot's running out of batteries. Look, it's going really slowly, you know, and we say, oh, where are your socks? You know, and they say, I wonder what happens if we, you know, take out the battery component. And we say, like, where are your shoes? You know, so <laughs> we're actually never sometimes meeting each other where we are. Um, and that obviously that happens sometimes in the rush of everyday life. But if that's a real pattern, we can actually kind of talk past each other without ever really feeling heard. Um, and it might seem really subtle at first, but it's something to notice, and especially in relationships with adults, to really see, like, can I focus on what this person's authentically trying to tell me before I move on to something else? Well, and you make such a good point there, because communication is not just talking. It's listening. It's letting people be heard and, and making sure they feel like they were heard. So do you think that listening is more important than speaking? That's a great point. I, I think it's the foundation of any conversation. So I wouldn't say it's more important, but I would say it's equally important. Um, and I think if we can set that as a foundation that we both want to hear what the other person has to say, um, I think we're priming ourselves, almost like priming the pump for a much richer conversation. And part of that actually teaches children um, to understand how to listen to others. Because we often think, oh, the skill just develops naturally. But a lot of times children don't have those skills of how to listen really authentically to other people. So the more we model it, the more we do it, uh, we're not actually giving power over to our children. We're helping them to learn to listen to others as well. Well, you know, and, and when those children are young, that prefrontal cortex is not developed at all. Exactly. So just having the patience you know, to listen can be hard. Exactly. As they get older, that gets easier. But, you know, I think that speaking is a lot easier than listening. <laughs> I really yeah. do. A lot of times, yes, I think it's a lot, you know, sometimes people and kids and everyone, we more speak to hear ourselves speak and don't take the time to really pay attention. Well, and I think that I, I'm always interested in what somebody has to say and the better listener that I, that I am. And I, sometimes I have to work at it, but I find the better listener I am, the better conversations we have. Exactly. And I, I do think that sometimes we miss these things that kids are saying. You know, sometimes we say, oh, kids say funny things. But a lot of times they're really often thinking, even at young ages, about these pretty big ideas. Um, and so actually taking the time to hear some of their questions, which may seem kind of off the wall or kind of, you know, unusual and actually following through with them. You know, if a child says like, well, why can't, why can't I be younger tomorrow? You know, <laughs> like, or why, why don't the stars appear in the sky during the day? You know, something like that. Like they're just wondering these things, but they're actually, you know, if we take that curiosity and run with it, um, it can be a really interesting conversation. Well, I think that curiosity and that creativity, that if we can develop that, or help our children develop that, that in itself opens up so many doors for them and what they want to do and how they want to do it. It's anything that I could do at the time I was raising my boys to help give them what they need to move forward. It was a top priority. I mean, that's for sure. And you're, you come at it not only as a clinician, but you're a speech pathology researcher, you're a mom, so you've got your own little lab right there in, in the house. Exactly. And that was what was so funny is that actually, as I was doing a lot of this research, I was trying things out in my own house. 
Um, and also feeling like, oh, actually what some of the research says doesn't actually seem to work for me. Um, and I think it was actually a humbling experience because it made me realize how that whenever we give recommendations to people or say, oh, you should say this or don't say that, you know, we really need to think about helping every parent tailor something to themselves. So actually say, well, how does this work for your own life? Or how does this work for your style? Um, because I realized some of the things I was reading didn't work in my own life. Um, so that was actually illuminating as well. Well, it, it does my heart good to hear you say, hey, I tried what the research says and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And because that just that that prompts you to find more options and more solutions. What's the biggest problem that you faced in in really teaching communication to kids? Yes. Um, so I would I guess I would say there's a couple of things. The first is just that we are often so busy um, and kind of living in a pace where everyone wants immediate gratification. So, you know, it's very hard sometimes to help children wait, um, to help them even wait for their own thought processes. And even actually when we give them time uh, to expand on their thoughts, to explore things, it can be so hard even for children growing up in today's environment to take a pause and to kind of take that time to explore what they're working on. So oftentimes, especially if they've been in, you know, on their phones a lot or in an environment where we're rushing from one thing to the other, they're expecting a much quicker pace. And so I think taking the time and actually helping them and helping us slow down a little bit has been the biggest challenge. Well, you know, I think that might be harder with adults. Mm -hmm. what, have, yeah. what have you found? Yes, I find that adults actually, it's almost as though there's a panic that sets in if we're not always doing something sometimes. Um, the sense of, oh, we're not getting anything done or we're not being efficient. Um, a lot of parents really obviously want their children to learn and to progress. And there's so much focus on structured activities and moving from one thing to the other. But what we actually know is that, you know, structured activities like sports and everything are great. I mean, they give so many different skills. But if we do those too much, um, kids are, don't have the downtime to actually process much or even reflect on what they're doing or even decide what their own authentic interests are. So they often kind of follow directions, but they're not developing the kind of creativity we might like to see over the long term. So I think it's kind of maybe trickles down from adults, but I think kids are being affected as well. Well, and, and as we mentioned before, kids just don't have the the patience, that's something that's that gets developed over time. Or I, or I like to think it gets developed yeah, over time. <laughs> well, when you when you talk with adults and you I mean you train, you you teach how to have conversation, but what's it like to treat to teach the written part of the language? Yes. I mean it's a very interesting process because I often um, think about writing and written language, almost like speaking with an additional layer. Um, so it's really not totally one thing and then the other thing. Um, so when I work with children and even adults on their writing, I often think about, well, how can we translate our thoughts onto paper and kind of how does that structure change when we're moving from speaking to writing? Because a lot of people you know, they love to talk, they have lots of ideas, but they get almost a little hung up when it comes to putting their thoughts on paper. 
you know, actually staring at the blank page or saying, you know, I really can't get started. So I found that it can be really helpful to actually do things like brainstorming out loud or helping children or adults record voice memos and then write them down or type them out and transcribe them um, to support that process of moving from the spoken word to the written word um, and not find that kind of paralysis. Well, I find with a lot of clients that, you know, because I encourage people to journal, I encourage people when they're experiencing something with a family member, write them a letter. Mm-hmm. I mean, but getting it out of their head and yeah. onto paper is such a difficult task. It's, you know, though, and a lot of times I'll say, well, come on, bring what you've started in and, and we'll work on it together. Um, and then I can kind of watch and see because it's the way the brain processes when you're speaking is so much easier than what your brain has to go through to have those thoughts to transform that and put it down on paper. So I really, written communication is something that I've always worked on. I wrote a book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. And that's when I I was humbled at what I thought my writing skill was. (laughs) Finishing up a PhD, that that skill has gotten better, no doubt. (laughs) But But there's still so much to learn. So we've got a few, just, couple of minutes before we take a break. Is there any tips that you could share with our listeners about written communication? Yes, I think um, the first really important one is just to think about what is your purpose and what is your audience? So I think also writing down, say, if there was one thing, if you could only have 30 seconds to get your whole message across, what is that one thing you'd want to do or what to say? Um, and I think actually before getting started writing, just honing in on that message, honing in our, on your own voice and your own intention um, can be a really helpful way to move forward rather than saying, let's start with that big blank page. That's great advice because nothing's more scary to take a, a lot of times when I get creative, I'll take a whiteboard and I'll look at it thinking, oh yeah, I'm just going to get all these great <laughs> ideas, you know, and I'm just going to put them up there and I'll stand there and I'll look at that whiteboard for maybe five minutes. And then I'll think, hmm, there's got to be, an, there's got to be an easier way to do that. So I think you're right, you know, breaking it down into small pieces, making it easier, even to visualize is a, is a great way to do it. And I think that a lot of people think that they can't write. And if they just slow down and practice, they really can. And I encourage people to journal because that's kind of a free flow writing activity. And if you can, that's a good way to start being able to get what's in your head out of your head. And when you're journaling, nobody's going to see it but you. So that gives us some freedom and that gives us some opportunity to really expand those written skills. The... I don't know how long it took me to write the first chapter in my book, but I can tell you it took a lot longer than I thought it would. Yes. yes. The same with you? Yes, definitely. I think, yes, it's always a challenge, but always something I continue to work on. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a break and stay with us, come back and learn a lot more about how you communicate. We'll be back after these messages. 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. It's words you never heard. Did you hear the one about the man who drove his van into a lake because he was following GPS instructions? The minivan driver apparently ignored a series of road signs while following his GPS, which directed him to an abandoned road, which led right into a lake. What's a word for a person who obeys without question? A myrmidon. His vehicle was almost entirely underwater by the time emergency services arrived on the scene. Police said the driver took a road that was closed a year ago when the area was flooded to make an artificial lake to serve as a reservoir. He ignored three road signs warning of a dead end. It was dark outside and simply didn't see the water. Sounds like a bit of a rinkaboo to me. That's a news story that may be bending the truth a little. It's marching down. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back, and before break, we were just starting to talk about written communication, because written communication plays a big role in our life as well as oral communication, particularly in our professional life. And when I think about how creative that you can get with your writing if you have the freedom to do so, Rebecca, how do you open that up for people? Yeah, so a lot of times I start um, in many different ways, kind of allowing for a range of different expressions. So I don't always start with writing, actually. Um, I might start with asking a child or an adult to tell me a story uh, about something that happened recently. Or I might ask them to make a drawing and say, you know, draw me um, the most strange thing that happened over the past couple of weeks or the most funny thing that happened uh, and use that as a prompt. Um, Because a lot of times I've met with children and also adults who have tons of ideas, but who just really feel paralyzed and stuck when they get to the actual writing process. So part of it is kind of demystifying what writing is all about and realizing that it's kind of part of that whole flow of creativity. It doesn't have to be kind of its own separate and scary thing. And that's what a lot of those exercises are designed to do. Can you give us an example of an exercise that you use? Yeah, sure. So um, sometimes I will start by saying, okay, let's um, draw kind of the funniest thing that happened to you, you know, in the past couple of weeks and, or even make a free flow drawing. So one thing I'll I'll actually give you an example. I was, um, I did actually yesterday. 
um, which is I kind of started a kind of free flowing drawing practice with my daughter, who is now 11. And she likes to make very, um, I would say, very structured drawings, like she'll draw hearts or patterns or flowers. Um, but I kind of make these drawings that are very um, expressive and kind of abstract. So they could be a lot of different things. Um, and so what's been really funny is that my son, who's five, um, will see the drawings every night before dinner. And he's he really loves, he calls them, tell me some questions. So he loves to look at the drawings and to tell a story about what's happening in the drawings, <laughs> So which he makes up. So he'll say like, oh, I see that here's a monster and this is a tree and then the monster's jumping over the river and all of this. And so as he starts telling the story, then I actually start helping him write it down. Um, and it becomes kind of his own story, but it was prompted by a drawing that I made, um, kind of designed to not necessarily show one thing. So really open-ended drawing. Um, and that's something I want actually to help him do and help other people do is to make those own kind of drawings himself and then tell stories from there. That's a great, that's a great example. That really is. And it sounds like so much fun. Oh yes, it is really fun. I didn't actually, it really came about um, unintentionally when I was making these drawings and he thought it was so fun. He just made up this game um, to, you know, imagine what was in the, in the drawing. So it has been a lot of fun. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting because having boys, I always thought that I needed to do physical things with them. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I really didn't. You know, there's so much. We cooked together. We, you know, we would, they would bake with me. We would make bread. But other than that, I really kind of focused on the physical because they had so much energy. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My son does as well. Yeah. That I was like, okay, let's go run around the block. I'll go with you. Um, but it's, you make the point and you've made it several times. It's finding ways to connect with your, your child and meeting them on their ground. And it doesn't always have to be on our ground and it doesn't always have to be our, our agenda. You made a great point about competing agendas. Definitely. And I think too, that even sometimes we do have those ideas in some ways that, you know, are more in the box kind of, which I, I definitely understand because I have a son who's very, very active. And if he doesn't go out, you know, and run around and kick a ball at some point during the day, he will have way too much energy so um so i definitely understand that focus and but at the same time you know he loves to paint to draw he's really interested in reading um and so kind of to see well let's see if we can open up some of our typical routines and patterns and you know maybe this time we'll go outside and kick the ball and maybe next time we'll do a little bit of that and then come in and try something else um, so i think it's always a little bit about um, looking at your expectations of who your children are, and then also maybe sometimes getting a little bit out of your comfort zone. So saying, oh, you know, what could we try that, you know, we've never done before. Um, sometimes I find that my kids have surprised me, you know, and that they'll be much more interested in something than I might have thought. So I think that's always a good question to ask is just, you know, what else might we try? And, you know, not necessarily say we have to do this forever, but even just try it once or twice and see how it goes. Well, I think, you know, I've been amazed at what I've learned when I've, when I've tried something. Oh, that went so well. Mm -hmm. Why didn't I do that before? So it, it opens up some real doors. And, it, you know, when we talk about as a kind of flipping back to the adult level, most conversations that when I work with couples that have 
relationship issues, most of it rotates around lack of communication. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yes, I've seen that as well. And I think sometimes, you know, people think that they're communicating because they're talking. Um, but really, it's more of that talking at each other, you know, that one person makes a point and the other person makes a point And, you know, we never really think as much about, well, how can we bring these points together? Or, you know, how can we, um, you know, not necessarily just find a compromise, but really empathize and understand the other person's perspective first? Um, because it might not always be the issue, you know, might not be what you think it is. And that's what I've also seen is that sometimes um, in one person's mind, the issue is A, in the other person's mind, it's B. So kind of trying to compromise on that is never going to work well until you understand really what the issues are. And if, you know, getting down to the point is the hard part. Yeah. We we will dance all around it. Mm-hmm. And, and But getting right to the point is, is really hard. You know, when, when I think back what we went through, the pandemic, oh, my gosh, that put us all yeah. together yeah. all the time. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know. I had clients that said, you know, I just, I kind of shut down because I just, I just kind of shut down during the time. What did you, did, was there special training that you did during the pandemic era? Yes, it's interesting because actually um, I write about that in my book. So the last chapter I write about how um, I didn't intend this book actually to be a pandemic book, but I ended up writing the last part of it um, during the pandemic. So moving very much from having an office to, you know, working with my kids, teaching my kids and, you know, having them ask me questions, all of this um, as we went along. And so, you know, I noticed this also with a lot of people I work with, that there's a big shift in our routines and our structures. And yes, that can definitely be very challenging. Um, It can also provide opportunities. So I know a lot of people who feel as though, well, with some help and some support, they've come out stronger in the sense that, you know, they have new relationships or they understand their partner or their children better. Um, And I think that for me, it's very much a process of figuring out, well, what are our different styles? And especially, I have a chapter in the book on temperament. Um, And I think that it becomes all the more important to understand each other's temperaments when you are together so much. Um, Because otherwise, I think you run the risk of, you know, it's kind of, bumping up against each other and really can be unpleasant ways or ways where you don't, you know, enjoy each other's company. So finding ways of actually understanding um, how each other functions, when is a good time to talk, when does the other person need alone time, all of that I think is just so critical in terms of finding a workable relationship and even thriving afterwards. Well, it's so hard when your home all of a sudden becomes this your school for your yeah, kids, exactly. your gym that you used to go to, your office, and you kind of lose perspective of this is my home, this is my house, this is my my safe place. Yeah, and you know I think about all those kids that were homeschooled, and that's a different type of learning environment. And what a struggle it must have been. And I've worked with several that had a really hard time going back into a classroom. Mm-hmm. What did you find during that? Yes, time? definitely. I mean, I found as well that, um, you know, some parents really, obviously, there's just so much pressure um, on everyone. So some parents were challenged, obviously, to be working full time while also being full time teachers of their children. Um, and, you know, and I think the expectation 
it's just an impossible thing for parents to feel as though, you know, how can I be my child's teacher while also fulfilling my job responsibilities while also, you know, being a, a partner or wife or, a, you know, a father. Um, and so I think that um, part of the frustration comes out of a lot of guilt kind of feeling, you know, I can't do it all. And of course people can't do it all because there's no way to be all of those people um, and play all of those roles simultaneously. Um, and so part of what I've worked on is actually how to help people set their own boundaries and kind of push off some of those feelings of guilt, recognizing that, you know, you can only do so much. Um, and I think those conversations are also really important. So what I hear you say is setting realistic expectations. Exactly. And, and to say, you know, that we can't, for example, you know, you have this ideal, maybe you're with your kids all day, but it doesn't mean, you know, you can be literally with each other talking all day, you know, that everyone does need um, some of their own routines, their own space. Um, and really to have some of that private time, I think is so important as well. So I think more doesn't always mean more. And that's something that I've emphasized a lot. Sometimes less is more. It exactly. truly is. <laughs> well, when working with kids at have you worked with teachers and and trying to help them bring their their sense of community back into the classroom? Yes, I have. I actually have done a couple of um, day long professional development sessions over Zoom, um, as well as working with teachers um, in smaller groups, um, because I do think that these principles translate so well to teachers in the classroom, um, to bringing back a sense of belonging and community. And even to helping children, you know, feel as if, how do we learn how to respect each other again or how to build friendships? Um, a lot of teachers are working with kids on um, how to remain friends even after conflicts or work through conflicts and not have the friendship fall apart. Um, and so I think all of these skills are always things we're thinking about, but especially in the pandemic or after the pandemic, um, they're very fragile for a lot of kids. Um, and a lot of kids are very anxious um, going back in classrooms. So figuring out how to reteach these skills or even teach these skills to younger kids um, is just so important. And I know, you know, my son is five and he, for a long time, he was growing up, you know, and kind of learning about friendships during the pandemic. So I remember my daughter at one point said about him, you know, he's almost five and he doesn't even know what a play date is, <laughs> you know, because we just didn't have people over to the house. Um, and so for him growing up socially, that's just a very different experience. So he's kind of learning some of those skills along, you know, for the first time, like a lot of kids his age. That, wow, that's such an interesting comment that, you know, he didn't even know what a play date was. Yeah, and I was like... <laughs> Yeah, that's true, actually. That's funny. But yeah, I mean, he because he was, you know, two or something when it all started. So I remember just, you know, taking him home from school and saying like, oh, wow, I guess we're going to be at home. We didn't know for how long, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think it really has struck kids, especially in that age range, very, you know, in a hard way, because they it's not like they need to redevelop those skills. They need to develop them for the first time. Well, you know, and when you think about wearing masks, that really does complicate communication. I've yeah. had a hard time understanding people sometimes when we're both speaking through mass. Mm -hmm. And for, for a sure. long time, that was the only way we spoke. Yes, exactly. And I know there's also research out there, especially for even older kids, 
um, not just on the understanding language, but um, on understanding facial expressions and emotions. Um, because when you can't always see the whole, you know, all of a person's face, it can be hard um, to tell what a person's really feeling. And one study I read actually showed that a lot of kids were interpreting kind of neutral facial expressions as negative. Um, you know, thinking that, oh, this person's mad at me, when really they're not making a, a mad face. Um, and I actually remember talking to my own daughter when she told me there was, she wasn't really involved, but she told me about an issue or an incident at school where it had all, you know, one girl was crying and it all started because the girl thought her friend was mad at her and she really wasn't, you know, but it was just this whole thing that spiraled out of control. Um, so I do think that we have to be especially attentive to the emotional side of things. Oh, absolutely. And with the, the stress of, of what we went through, loss of community. I mean, I couldn't go to the gym for six weeks. I couldn't go to church yes, exactly. for a while. I mean, just losing that sense of community was hard on us all. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think also the community lost, but also just that sense of fear. I mean, I've talked to so many kids who will say like, oh, well, I don't know if I can go to the grocery store. You know, I don't know if it's safe or I don't know if it's safe to go to my friend's house. And you know, that's something that we really don't know what's the impact long term of having kids feel like, oh, is the grocery store safe or is my friend's house safe? Um, but definitely reestablishing that sense of like, it's OK to go out of your house and it's OK to be in places because um, that's been upended for a lot of people. And that's been a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. There's still uh, what I'm experiencing is there's still a lot of fear. And every time we get an update on the news about a new variant, um, that kind of that turns that fight or flight or freeze system, cranks that up to hyper arouse. Exactly. And I do think that, um, you know, obviously the news works on these kind of cycles. And so it can be really hard if the news is on a lot, um, you know, especially for kids who are hearing all of this, who are saying like, oh, what's the next thing, bad thing that's happening? Or, you know, what else do we have to be worried about? Um, because obviously kids can't do a lot of learning or connect really well if they're constantly in that flight and flight mode. Um, so helping them kind of even reduce how much they're hearing and seeing of all of that can be a helpful start too. So it's interesting. You made me think about social media because when we were in that, that state where we were, you know, on our computer for school, I know that a lot of, of kids and adolescents turn to social media for relief. And I know that that, to me, that places us in a comparative society. And anytime you compare, you got a winner and a loser. And so that, that's, I have experienced on a counseling level, a lot of whiplash from that. How, what, how, what do you think about communicating on social media? Yes, I mean, I definitely think it's it can be very, very challenging and fraught with issues, um, especially for younger kids. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I don't have kind of a blanket, you know, social media is bad kind of viewpoint. Um, I think there is some nuance to it because it does let kids and even adults, you know, keep up community, especially in times when they can't always be together. Um, but I think especially the comparative aspect. And we know, for example, you know, young teenage girls, especially or preteens who are on TikTok and scrolling, this kind of thing. So it affects a lot about um, their self-worth 
as well as even just their cognitive, you know, their attention, um, because they're constantly flipping from one thing to the other. So that sense of, you know, I'm not as good as this person or insecurity can really heighten with those kind of ways of using social media. So I like to really emphasize um, the how of social media as well. So thinking about, well, are children using it to connect with their friends and to share ideas or share plans, or is it more of that comparative scrolling type of use? Well, and there's another opportunity to, to do it with your child, get on social media, show me what you look at on social media. What do you like to look at the most? And and then maybe even have some good sites for them to look at in your in your back pocket so that you Definitely. can pull those yeah. out. And I do think if we can do that and sort of it's more of a conversation, you're more of a guide, um, you're much more likely to get a child to be on your side rather than if you're pitted against your child saying, you know, get off of that and they hide to be on it. Uh, you know, it's never really going to um, end well, probably. <laughs> no, it's not. So, you know, and that made me think of it. Some conversations never do end well. I can remember because, you know, my kids were kids and I can remember they'd be throwing a temper tantrum and I'd go in and try to talk to them. And that was a disaster. Mm-hmm. How would you advise parents to handle that? Yes. Well, I definitely think um, I've seen that myself as well. And I think that when kids are in whatever state of heightened emotion, so it might be a temper tantrum for a younger child or just, you know, some older child who's really angry or really upset or even super excited. Um, Oftentimes our reaction is to use more words, you know, to try to talk them down from that heightened emotion or try to get them out of that temper tantrum by reasoning with them. And that really almost never works. Um, And the reason is because to be in this reflective mindset of having these back and forth conversations, we need a certain amount of emotional balance and kind of to be regulated enough to have these conversations. And when we're way out of that zone, whether it's really good, like we're really excited or really bad, like we're very upset or having a tantrum, those more words really aren't heard. And they kind of contribute to the noise and the dysregulation of the system of a child. So it's actually more helpful um, to try to comfort the child, to try to use fewer words and things like touch or simple gestures or simple language to support them. And then afterwards to have more of that reflective conversation. So not thinking you can stop a tantrum with more talking. (laughs) So just let it play out and just, is that the best thing to do? Well, I do think, I mean, it depends on what the tantrum is about, but to reassure the child, you know, you're with them, A lot of times they fear, you know, I'm being abandoned or you're leaving me or you hate me. So to really comfort them and to say you're with them with all of these hard feelings. But at the same time, you know, if they are having a tantrum, not to give in, say, you know, they're saying I'm having a tantrum because I want this toy, you know, well, we can't have the toy. So I think if you do give them what they want because of the tantrum, you're setting yourself up for more tantrums, probably. Um, so reassuring them that you understand they're upset, you understand their and validate their emotions, um, but allowing them to realize too that you're not going to change because of the temper tantrum. So sort of finding that balance between standing your ground, but also to recognize that this is hard for a child to not get what they want. It's hard for them to, you know, not be able to do exactly as they want, but it doesn't mean that you're going to let them do that. Well, it's hard for adults too. 
exactly. you know, I don't like it when I don't get what I want. Exactly. Right. So to realize that that's not a bad or, you know, we should, we shouldn't say to kids, you know, you can't have that feeling or you can't, you know, you shouldn't feel like that. I mean, I think to recognize that all of their feelings are valid, but that doesn't mean they can behave however they want. No. And, and it, it's so interesting because everything that we've said today about kids, it, it's, it plays very well for adults too. Yeah. Yes. It, it really does. And I think the older we get, the more our communication skills come into play. And those that can tell their story, those that can articulate their thoughts really do. They're, those are the ones that may get the most attention. Yes. Yes. And I do also think the people who are really able to understand an audience, whether it's, um, you know, if you're a business person to understand your clients' needs, or if you're a teacher to understand what your students really want or are motivated by, that listening piece really does help think about, you know, well, what do you want to say? Because it will be much more targeted if you actually do that understanding piece first. Boy, that's a gr- that is a great point. Thank you for making that. That is, that is a great point. So we've got about three minutes left, and I'd like to, you know, just to kind of let our listeners know that I've had Rebecca Rowland with me. She's the author of The Art of Talking with Children. She's a Harvard faculty member. She's a speech pathologist. She's a mother, and she shared a lot of her her experience as being a mom with us today. But she also works with adults to give them practical tools to help them have productive and meaningful conversations with children of all ages, whether it's engaging an obstinate toddler or getting, oh my gosh, adolescents to open up. <laughs> That's a chore in itself. For our listeners that want to learn more about what you do and uh, what where you are online, how can they find you? Yeah, so the best place is probably my website. So it's just RebeccaRoland.com with um, two C's, Rebecca, and two R's in Roland. Um, and there I also two have- L's in two L's. Two L's, sorry. <laughs> two L's, oh, yes. My, losing my own name. Um, yes, two L's in Roland, I'm sorry. Um, and there they'll actually see a newsletter um, where I do send out occasional updates as well as tips and strategies and I take questions. So if you're ever interested or have a question you'd like to ask, um, please feel free to um, write me as well. And I'm happy to answer. That's great. That's absolutely a gift that, you know, just for people to know that because we all have communication issues and we all have problems. And I'm sure you do the standard stuff, the social media, the Facebook, the LinkedIn, the Instagram, those things. Yes, and I'm happy to share those as well. So I'm just um, on Facebook at Rebecca Roland Author. I have an author page there. On Twitter, I'm um, Roland underscore RG. And then on Instagram, it's just Rebecca.G.Roland. Um, so you can find me on any of those places, and I'd love to connect. Well, thank you so much for sharing that information. And, and thank you for offering to answer questions, because when you said that, I was like, hmm, I have <laughs> <Yeah>. questions. <laughs> I mean, we all have questions and it's easier to ask them anonymously than it is to sit down face to face. Exactly. Yes, yes. So I, anything that makes it easy, I am all for. Rebecca, it has been such a joy having you on the show today. I appreciate all the information you shared, and I appreciate you spending time with me today. Oh, yes. Thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. 
Well, I am going to look forward to learning more about, I'm going to have to pick that book up. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.